Hello, and welcome to Queering Desi. I'm your host, Priya. As a South Asian queer non-binary person, I have learned a lot on my journey of self-acceptance and building community. So in each episode, I will bring you a slice of South Asian LGBTQ life with a guest who exemplifies what it means to be who you are and to live your truth. I like to create a safe and open discussion with our guests and listeners. So if the topics on this podcast are controversial, please know these opinions are of the guest and host, and we don't mean any offense. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, welcome to a brand new episode of Queering Desi. This week, I'm so excited to talk to a fellow Ruckus Avenue radio host, Sandeep Morrison. Welcome to the show, Sandeep. Thank you for having me, Priya. I'm so excited to talk to you, but before we dig in, uh, can you just please introduce yourself to our listeners if they haven't heard about you? Sure. My name is Sandeep Morrison. I'm a writer, actor, activist based out here in Los Angeles. Wow, wonderful. And so I'll just jump right in with your Ruckus Avenue radio show, uh, because as just a fan myself, I'm finding a lot of like insight and a great like conversation that happens in every episode. Can you talk a little bit about Deep Talks and, and kind of what your inspiration for that show has been? First and foremost, I, I love being part of the Ruckus Avenue family, and I'm also a big fan of your show, Priya. Thank you. <laughs> I, my goal with the show was just to create a space where I get a chance to have you know, deep heart-to-heart conversations with artists and innovators and trying to create a space where art and activism intersect and just highlight projects and people and narratives that I feel are, are really fostering change. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely get that sense from your show, but I kind of want to get into like what kind of fuels that art and that activism. Can you tell me about like a little bit of your journey with that and what that has meant to you? I think as a queer fellow Desi, I think that our existence is part of our resistance, our reality. And so for me, I use my art, my writing, and my show Raghead is my kind of vehicle for resistance and to put this narrative out there and shine the light on, you know, cycles of oppression that I've been through. So my work is very personal. And in doing that, I try to connect with people that have that same personal connection to their own work. So that's kind of what what pushes me and drives me to find these stories. Absolutely. I mean, I want to get to Raghead, but I think, I mean, this is maybe a good segue to that because I, I want to talk about some of the things that, that have meant meant a lot in your journey and what that has meant for you. But um, let's start with Raghead. Yeah, you mentioned that. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that, this amazing show? And, and I hope to, that I get to see it at some point, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Sure, I'd be honored for you to see it. So the impetus for me to write Raghead was, again, very personal. So I was raised Punjabi Sikh and both of my parents live in Wisconsin and they're actually members of the Oak Creek Gurdwara where the shooting happened. So the day of the shooting, I was here in LA with my daughter and I got a frantic call from my younger brother who was in Wisconsin. And I know that every Sunday, you know, my parents like thousands of other Americans, you know, they go to a place of worship and, and they bow their head in prayer and reflect. And so for me, my norm was I knew that on Sundays, they usually would have their phones off. So I get this call from my brother and I could just hear it right away in his voice that something's wrong. And he said, I can't get hold of mommy G and daddy G. And I said, you know what? They're probably doing bot prayer and they'll call you. He said, no, no, turn on the TV. Something horrible has happened. And so I watched the events unfold on CNN, like many other people. And 
it was a moment that changed my life. And so for an hour, we couldn't get a hold of my parents and I thought the worst. And we knew that, you know, the sheriff's department would only confirm that there had been fatalities, but they wouldn't give us names. So my brother was on the ground because he's fluent in Punjabi and he was doing translation services and trying to look in the parking lot to see if their car was there. And after an hour, my mom finally called us and said she was okay because there's only three places of worship in all of Wisconsin, only three Gurdwaras. So that rocked our community and our family. And I was so angry and sad that I picked up my pen to write, which is a source of release for me. And I found myself in a state of depression and anger and I wrote this story. And so the main character, I play seven characters and each of the narratives is based on someone in my family or that I've interacted with, you know, my father, my mother, my brother. That's how Raghead was created. I can't imagine going through that, like even firsthand or secondhand. I mean, I watched it just like everybody else and being a Punjabi myself, like I, I consider myself very close to the Sikh faith, even though I identify as Hindu. And it was a painful thing because I'm sure you can relate to this, but like racism in America touches on brown people in so many different ways. But I would love to hear from you if you're okay talking about it, like what that was like for you. I mean, you touched upon things like mental health, but when trauma happens, especially when our communities kind of carry this intergenerational trauma from our diaspora, like from our motherland kind of histories, can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you, both personally and just like in terms of turning this into art and into activism? You know what? It was absolutely debilitating. I became hyper aware and I had this constant state of worry over my parents. You know, my dad wears a turban. My parents own a gas station in a rural part of Wisconsin. And, you know, I feel like 9-11 really changed things for us. I felt like we had to almost become hyper patriotic to kind of prove our American patriotism in the face of the aftermath, it was just this constant feeling of worry in my gut of, oh God, what if someone comes and does something to my parents? Because they've had their store vandalized. They've had a brick thrown through their window, swastikas painted on their garbage can. And my parents, the generation that they're from, they have this kind of unwavering sense of resilience where I am more apt to getting angry and it's something that I'm working through. So I would see my parents just pick up the pieces and apply a fresh coat of paint and move forward. But it really did rock my community to see how close this was. And also our Muslim brothers and sisters and neighbors, we became extremely close as well because there's a masjid not even 10 minutes away from the Gurdwara. So our Muslim community, you know, our our neighbors thought, oh God, this person was probably looking for us and ended up at your doorstep, you know? And then also for the lack of media coverage as well in, in terms of the depth, I felt like, just completely helpless. Yeah. I mean, I think some of that still carries now, right? Like even when the anniversary rolls around each year, I work in news and I'm always aware when the date kind of rolls around just personally and professionally, but it's jarring to kind of see the fact that like something like this was kind of overlooked. I mean, it's still, and it kind of still tends to be, and it's disheartening. I think like what you're saying about having to prove like that patriotism is so hurtful in so many ways, but also that confluence that you're saying of like, oh, they were probably coming for like, you know, our Muslim brothers and sisters. Like, it's so painful. Like, I don't know, I think even post 9-11 personally as a brown person, as a queer person to carry that, that much has changed and that can still be debilitating at times for me, at least personally. And it also fuels me in other ways, 
I wonder if it's like that for you, because I feel like that's still kind of the case, like despite progress in so many other ways. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think for me, my existence, and I think you can empathize as well, is that being queer, being Punjabi, being just South Asian, you know, it's all these layers we have to navigate. And so my faith is very dear to me, but I also, I don't wear a turban and I am queer. And so it really made me view my identity and made me even more hyper aware of how I present in certain spaces. And I think that even like now in this sociopolitical climate, I mean, the seven year anniversary of the shooting, the remembrance is next week. And post 9-11, I don't think things have gotten better. I think, especially in this political climate, I mean, with our sitting president, you know, spewing this hate rhetoric and telling, you know, these U.S. Congresswomen to go back. I mean, anytime there's toxic political rhetoric, it's going to be echoed in society. And I think that the effects are devastating. You know, words carry gravity. But yeah, it's something I struggle with on my own. And even even creating Raghead, I had to go through my own identity battle of, am I sick enough? You know, do I have the right to even tell this story? So it was a really trying time to just put this story out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you bring up a great point is, am I sick enough or am I, for me, it's like, am I desi enough? Can you dig into that a little? Because I feel like a lot of our listeners and I definitely can identify with that feeling, like in terms of faith, especially, but in terms of like presentation or, or like the instances of wearing a turban or wearing a hijab, can you talk a little bit about that, of like that equivalence of like, am I the right person or, or am I empowered enough to speak or as many people in America kind of place that onus on, on people of color or minorities to tell their stories. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think for me, so my faith, I grew up going to Gormat camp and basically a lot of my childhood was spent in the Gordwara. And I knew very early on that I was bisexual, even when I didn't have the terminology and I had these feelings. So I was constantly, you know, ostracized for being called too masculine and it really hit me. And, you know, there is this pressure in Sikhi to keep your hair. And then if you go on even further, there's a separation between the Punjabi culture and the Sikh faith of what are our beauty ideals? What do we consider feminine? What do we consider beautiful? And so I, I never felt like I fit into those spaces, even though I had a deep connection to my faith. And now living in this vessel and, you know, being more fluid in my presentation, if anything, I do get a lot of criticism because I don't look the part, for lack of better words. And I think that it's beautiful for anyone to want to wear a the star turban to take umrah. But I think that the core values are how you practice and how you live by your sikhi. So I've received a lot of criticism and hate, and it just is a little extra bitter when it comes from your own community. Yeah, absolutely. For me, especially in a similar way, right, gender presentation uh, or gender stereotypes within the Desi community at large, the South Asian community, but definitely within religious contexts, like this idea of looking a certain way, definitely as it applies to queerness in all its forms, but just as its own thing is something I've struggled with as well, right? Like the short hair or dressing more masculine, or exploration of pronouns, exploration of sexuality. Can you talk a little bit about that identity for you and how you were able, or still kind of, I definitely still grapple with this, but kind of bring that into all your other identities? Because I don't think, I, sorry for asking such a long-winded question. I guess like for me, 
I constantly struggle with bringing all of my identities together, right? But definitely in South Asian spaces or religious spaces, feeling like I'm close enough culturally to be accepted, especially when my queerness kind of is on my sleeve. Can you talk a little bit about if that's your kind of experience or what your experience has been like with that? Yeah, I think I can, I mean, to echo what you're saying, it's, I absolutely feel that way. I feel the safest in queer spaces. I feel the most embraced in queer spaces. And I think that a lot of people make assumptions. I mean, I'm married to a cis man, I'm bi, and there's so many misconceptions around gender and sexuality. So I get a lot of questions of people thinking that bisexuality is synonymous with promiscuity, that we have uh, somehow have an open marriage right off the bat. And it's these intrusive questions that really make you feel uncomfortable. But I think that, especially in the South Asian community, I think that if people were to just dig deeper in our rich history, like we've recognized a third gender. And I, and I really always make a point to mention that that we recognize a third gender, that these post-colonial sentiments have really affected how we've embraced our own gender and look at the binary and really explore that. So it really hits me. I had an interesting moment of just going to Gurdwara, which I call I go off peak hours. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll go maybe, you know, during the week earlier and, and listen to Kirtan. I encountered an auntie and she looked at me and she passed me, you know, she gave me a $20 bill. And I looked at her, I was like, Auntie G, no, no, I don't, I don't need your money. And she said, look to me, she said, no, no, it's for your treatment. I have a buzzed head. And she assumed that I was, you know, sick or dying. And so it's just those moments where I live in my norm. And then when, when I have those interactions, they're a little bit jarring, but it's so interesting to me that I feel anyway, that us you know, people that are that are in the experience of diaspora and navigating this queer identity, that we become masterful code switchers. Mm. And it's exhausting, but it is, it becomes second nature when it shouldn't be. Yeah, absolutely. You said a couple of things that I'm going to come back to. One is like the bisexual identity, right? My My partner identifies as bisexual as well. And I think something I've picked up on and that we've talked about is this idea of passing, right? Like this idea that if a bisexual person identifies as female and is married to a male identifying person, a sort of loss of identity that happens and something that she felt kind of when she was with a cis male partner. Is that something that you relate to? And and how do you kind of tap into to talk about the themes that we're talking about, right? Like feeling queer enough? Because I definitely, even identifying as queer in certain queer spaces can feel that onus of like self-policing that happens within the community. And and it's interesting that it happens across communities, right? But I'm interested in hearing a little bit about your experience with that. I really struggled with it because, you know, there is so much judgment and there is so much questioning, especially when you're in in a certain uh, relationship dynamic. And I think that now I'm, I'm at a juncture in my life where I don't feel like I have to qualify my queerness, but I did go through that of, you know, am I in the right space to share enough? Will I be judged? And it's been horribly painful, but, you know, I think for me, it was just reconciling with the fact that my queerness is a part of my identity and my experience, but I do feel we are plagued by this kind of qualifying structure of, oh, you know, because you're bi, therefore you really aren't queer. And then there's that narrative attached to that. It's been painful. And so, I mean, I would say within the last two years, I have fully just claimed 
the totality of my identity, of just really claiming all the parts of myself, where for a very long time, I kept it quiet. Yeah, absolutely. And to circle back on something else you said and and kind of related as well is these microaggressions, right? Like whether as a South Asian person, whether as a Sikh or a Hindu person, whether as a queer or bisexual person, I'm sure you've encountered this, but I have as well. And I struggle with this as an activist because part of me is like, I shouldn't accept this. But when you have people in, in a community that don't understand gender and sexuality, when you come across ignorant comments or, or comments that they just don't know any better or are pointedly kind of trying to get a reaction out of you. Like I struggle with this question, like what point do I speak up about it? And at what point do I kind of let it be? Is that something that you struggle with as well? And I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on that. Absolutely. I get angry because I've been tired so long. I think we're all tired, especially as queer DCs. <laughs> we're tired. Yeah, for sure. And so for me, whereas maybe a few years back, I would have held my tongue I do look at the situation and I am more apt to speak up, even if that means I'm going to lose friendships, even if that means I'm going to sour the moment. Because for me, that's part of my activism of, you know, if I have to disrupt the narrative and cause discomfort in this moment, then maybe this will make this person, this individual think twice before they make disparaging remarks against someone else. That's kind of the place where I'm at now of of speaking up, of speaking my truth, but it, it has not been an easy journey. So how does one get there, right? Because I definitely, in my growth and my journey as an activist, I've definitely grown more secure in being able to do that, especially if I deem it to be a safe space to do so, to speak up and to say something and to maybe even turn that into a, a teaching moment or a learning moment for folks. But that's not always possible, right? Like how, and sometimes sometimes that like certain things hurt more. Like I might think that I have progressed in my ability to weather those kinds of comments and then something, you know, happens. And I, as recently as a few months ago, I had a, you know, a Daisy uncle say something about my gender identity. And I, part of me was just, I was flabbergasted and I wasn't able to kind of speak up about it in that moment. What do you say about like kind of reaching that path of like being able to understand for yourself, the strength it takes to say, hey, maybe I can turn this into a moment because a lot of, I mean, that itself is a privilege, right? But a lot of people may not be able to say that or or feel strong enough to do that, even if it is a safe place to do so. I think you have to honor your heart and work in whatever capacity you have, you know, because we have to protect our heart space first and foremost. And for me, I still have those paralyzing moments where I feel like a deer in the headlights when someone says something completely egregious and I have to take that deep breath. I have to take that moment. And sometimes I I'm successful at keeping my composure and trying to relate with someone. And sometimes I fail. I completely fail, but I think that growth is ebb and flow, you know, and I think there's no perfect structure, but as long as you're trying to speak your truth, that's what matters. But I feel like the other truth is that someone can only meet you as deeply as they've met themselves in terms of their awareness. So if someone just is living with a myopic you know, viewpoint of the world and they have the blinders on, they're just refusing to see the world, you're only going to be able to get so deep with them. But I think as long as you try and you protect yourself and for people uh, that are queer and especially of color, that it's a question of safety because in spaces where you know there's a, a large cis male population I do feel where my safety is in question. And that makes me really hyper aware of of how I'm going to engage in in, with these people. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, it, you're that's so true. I mean, I, I want I know I'm going to go back and hear that over and over again, but you definitely have to meet people where they're at and and if that's not something you can do that's not on you. And I think that's something that I'm still unpacking and may always unpack, right? Of like that it's their journey and not mine and that I can only protect myself and my awareness of my identity and be open to learning about that as well, but that it's not like a finish line. It's just growth. It's just being open to that that openness and that open-endedness of it, of saying that this is a journey and not not like a end-all be-all. And that if someone else is not on that journey, that that's on them, not on me. Absolutely. You know, and I think that it's, you know, we're always evolving and sometimes it's two steps forward and like five back, you know, I've lost my cool. Yeah. I've been dissolved to tears and felt completely weak and have had, you know, done the ugly guttural cry in my car. Mm. And I think that's, the hard part of when we fully are saying this is who I am and I'm going to exist completely in my truth. That that's really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Something that really moves me about you and definitely hearing it on deep talks is the spirituality aspect of it, right? When we talk about how do we learn and grow and push ourselves for our own journeys, but hopefully the people around us as well. Spirituality is such a big part of that. Can you talk a little bit about what that journey has been like for you, whether it's related to religion, whether it's related to your queerness and how that spirituality kind of ties in? Sure. So I was raised by my my BG, my maternal grandmother who lived with us. My parents were blue collar immigrants. My dad drove cab. My mom was a seamstress. So I spent a lot of time with my BG. And that's why, you know, I attribute my fluency in Punjabi and Hindi to her. And so she planted the seeds early on because it was so important for her and my mom to expose us to different faiths. So we grew up going to Gurdwara and also going to Mandar, you know, watching Ramayana and Mahabharat and really getting this beautiful gift of spirituality. And so hearing my mom sing Shabads and Bhajans, I mean, that is implanted in you. And I remember every morning, my grandmother, even, you know, the smell of incense or tuf is just so visceral for me that she would be up before sunrise and meditating. And sometimes she'd make me sit with her. And I, I remember as a kid, I hated every minute of it because I was like, oh, great. Now I have to sit here in silence. But she was planting the seeds of stillness, which now as an adult, I use for moments of anxiety or if I'm, you know, in a depressive funk. And I think that to touch on mental health. So, you know, at the age of 17, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And I, I say I live with it, but because I'm not always in a state of suffering, but my spirituality has definitely helped me. And I remember that there was a moment, you know, in the Gurdwara that my, my BG was the first person to, I, I feel that acknowledged my queerness that, you know, when you enter a Gurdwara, you go and you matatek, you go to the altar and, and you give an offering and you bow and you sit. And we were sitting in Lunger Hall and there was an auntie who would just always mess with me. She was just so mean and so judgmental. And we we're sitting there eating Lunger and I'm sitting beside my Naniji and she looks at my Nani and says, you know, you should really do something because she walks like a boy. And I got red in the face. And my grandmother's response to her was, and so what? And even in just saying, so what, you know, after the auntie left, my grandmother looked at me and she said, you know, Shivji has, uh, you know, many different groups that there's male and female forms in many of the Hindu gods. And we have a male and female form. So that's what's within you. And that moment, I feel like she acknowledged who I was and basically told me that I wasn't a mistake. 
That's so powerful. I mean, I think those early experiences are so transformative, right? Like, likewise, I grew up Hindu, but we went to Gurdwara regularly. My dad was from Punjab, the heart of Punjab, and he grew up going there. He took us. But to sit there and have the kind of vibrations around you and have all of that transcend, you know, maybe even the language or the rituals of it, but to connect to something higher was so powerful for me. But I also struggled with, as I navigated through my queerness, right? Like, how to transcend into that kind of mindset in those spaces when, as you say in this example, right, the people kind of translate it in their own way. And that's something I've always struggled with is that separation of the people from the religion or the spirituality, because I feel like the more I got comfortable relating to and presenting my queerness and and both my sexuality and my gender identity, the farther I got from those spaces, but not because of my beliefs had changed or the underlying love I felt for a higher being changed, but actually because the people that kind of, that touted themselves as such believers or such followers actually translated that in, in such hurtful ways here on earth and in our own bodies. And I think that is something I still continue to struggle with, but definitely have always struggled with in those spaces. So it's so different to like hear like an example of that, right? Where, where you had a family member kind of stick up for you because I think those spaces for me have always been hard. Yeah. And, you know, her death was really, really affected me deeply. Even, even now, you know, it's, you have that one person in your life that sees you and that sticks with you. And, you know, even the Gurdwara space, it's still a, a traumatic space for me. I feel like, you know, the Gurdwara system is still a very male dominated place. There's still a power structure. And I had moments where, you know, full transparency, you know, I was assaulted in a gurdwara as a teen and it really, really created this kind of internal struggle because I had a dear relationship with my faith and this one place that was supposed to be a safe haven where I could come and have a sense of calm was now very triggering. And so in the work that I do, it's been a a really tough balance to still go into those spaces and not be triggered. And I look at the power structure and kind of the male dominance. And I've always thought that when you go to the bend and, you know, where in, in Punjab or wherever, you know, you have a panchayat, which is like the five leaders and it's usually men. And these men are in power and they make, you know, choices in terms of mu- municipal governance or whatever's going on in the bend. And then when they come to America or Canada, they want to still have that sense of power. And I feel like the first place they go to are the gurdwaras or the mandars. You know, you have the committees. And just that system is just laden with empirical history because that's completely antithetical to our faith. So it's been definitely been a struggle. And so I hear you and I agree with you that it's it's an ongoing struggle of keeping that balance. Yeah, that's so interesting that you say that. I actually never thought of it that way of like the perpetuation of those structures because I guess I always thought that the the patriarchal notions and the colonial trauma, ancestral trauma that diaspora folks come to other countries with, they carry with them. But to replicate it is almost um, an intentional, whether you're conscious of it or not, but to repeat those structures or to rebuild those structures in a new place, not out of this is how it's always been or this is survival, but actually out of intentionality is something I, I never thought of, but is it seems to be very resonant and very true. Yeah, I think that it's a power play at the end of the day. You know, I grew up watching the secretary or the president and there'd be a voting process or if someone had a family problem, 
they would go and and consult with these people in power who would usually give mm. horrible advice. <laughs> and you know, even with me in terms of my sexuality, I remember, you know, if there was a fellow queer Punjabi kid that they would try to, you know, hurry up and find a way to dismantle his queerness. And so you remember these things and you don't, you know, they stick with you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes it all the more amazing to me than this journey that you're on and and myself too. I'll relate myself to it, but to be able to tap into that and to turn it into art or activism is something special. But for me, something similar has been Queering Daisy, right? Turning that activism and that art form into something that can bring change and, and bring awareness. And hopefully, even if it impacts one person, is meaningful because of the things that we went through. Can you talk a little bit about that process for you and maybe what, what the reactions have been, both of your community, you know, strangers, audiences, anything? There definitely is a powerful response to the show because for me, my goal was if I can touch their hearts, then hopefully I can, you know, have them think about how they're going to, you know, operate and navigate in the world and just look at people of color, especially queer people. And so the response has been more positive than not, but it still is, you know, I speak my truth and I hold my white audience accountable. And so for me, just operating from a place of truth is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I talk about this often on the show, but this sense of of coming out is something I always return to as a means of trying to shatter this perception that there's one way of doing it or one kind of timeline for it. And in so many of our cultures, it's never the case. Is that something that come up for you with Raghead? Because for me, for example, with with my writing and with Queen Daisy, especially this idea of like putting yourself out there or making your identity kind of what your work centers around can be difficult for folks in the community to understand of like, why do we have to talk about all these uncomfortable things? Is that something you've faced as well? I did. I think that questions, you know, they go from the show to my, my gender or my, my queer identity very quickly. <laughs> and I yeah. think that there's a lot of curiosity. Uh, and so, you know, there's always that, that moment of, oh, but you're, you know, you're bi, how does that work into your art? And I, I fully immerse my identity, but there are always those moments where people are curious. And for me, it's, again, it's just assessing the moment and saying, okay, is this, how can I turn this into a learning curve rather than, you know, a stumbling block. Yeah, absolutely. For folks that may not know, are you performing the show? How might they be able to find out more about Raghead specifically and or see it if they're able? Absolutely. So I'll actually be performing the show here in Los Angeles, uh, July 27th at the Complex Hollywood. And then I will be taking the show to um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, August 3rd and 4th at the Broadway Theater Center and all the proceeds of the show are going to go to support the Interfaith Conference of Greater Milwaukee and to honor the seven-year remembrance of the shooting. That's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. My last question to you will be something that I ask all of my guests, but if you could give your younger self any advice, what would it be? And younger can mean anything, right? It can mean yesterday, 10 years ago, different timeline, but what would you say if you could? I would say just be yourself, love yourself, and and live in your truth. That's what I would say. Mm, that's powerful. I think that's something I still need to hear. <laughs> My younger self needs to hear that, and I need to hear that. But that's very relevant advice. 
I have to remind myself as well, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sandeep, for being on the show. I think it's been such a great experience. I feel like I could talk to you about many things, um, but I like the kind of flow we had. I think uh, our listeners will will learn a great deal. And And thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me, Priya. Again, I'm a big fan of your work and just thank you for giving me time and space today. Oh, thank you. And likewise, I will go ahead and plug both Deep Talks and Deep Show and Queering Daisy on Ruckus Avenue Radio every Wednesday. Your show is at four Eastern and mine is at five. So we're back to back if you're listening uh, on Wednesdays every week. But Sandeep, also, if folks, if you can just shout out your social media or any other place where folks can learn more about you, that'd be great. Sure. Um, you can check out my work at sundeepmorrison.com. And then it's also Sundeep Morrison on Instagram and uh, Reghead USA on Instagram as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Queering Daisy. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes to help us spread the word and to make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Queering Daisy. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please feel free to reach us on social media or drop us an email at queeringdaisy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.